0: The year was 1901. That is when Grace Point, or then First Baptist Church of Newtown, was founded. That's when we started. It took 112 years for us to plant our first church, and that church was Restoration Church. It's a process that began about seven years ago, give or take, probably a little longer, uh, to formulate the vision, a launch team, the name, find a building, all of that work. And it was just this past weekend, last weekend, that Restoration Church celebrated its fifth birthday. Throughout the course of that seven or two year or three year time that we were crafting vision, the elders had made a decision finding a pastor to pastor that church, finding a launch team that would go down to Levittown and be a part of, of a new movement of planting a church down in the Pinewood section of Levittown took an incredible amount of man hours, resources, prayer, that I think to this day we still don't really know how much that took. But God does. And God has been working through Restoration Church ever since they launched. So this morning it is our privilege and an honor to have a friend and a colleague with us, lead pastor of Restoration Church, Ross Manders. And Ross is is going to preach this morning while Dave is down at at Restoration. And Ross, I understand Dave gave you a really easy passage to preach this morning. Very, very. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Steve, thank you. Uh, Yeah, it's an honor to be here with you all this morning. Uh, Dave is down at Restoration this morning. I gave him a very easy passage in Philippians 2, talking about the the love of God for us and how we're supposed to be like Jesus, you know, it's all nice and good. Uh, He asked if I would come and preach on Revelation 12 and 13. (laughs) So, here I am. Um, Restoration uh, exists by and large because Grace Point uh, commissioned us and you are so sacrificial, and you raised up servants to come alongside of us and to go with us. And we just wanna say thank you because we would not be in existence. Levittown would not be experiencing transformation like it is, individual lives wouldn't be changed, households wouldn't be changed if Grace did not have a vision to plant a church. And so thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, We're so excited to to partner with you, to call you a sister and and to be doing the work together uh, within this region um, to help people experience restoration, to experience through the grace uh, that has offered us, so thank you so much. Um, we did celebrate five years just last week, so it's amazing to think about five years already. Um, but in honor of our fifth birthday, we put together a 26-minute-long documentary of the last five years. That You can go to our website on our media page and check that out if you're interested. It's, it's, it's very honoring of Grace Point, and so um, I would encourage you all just to even just be encouraged by, uh, again, Grace Point Planted a Church, in Levittown and to see how it's impacting people's lives uh, down there. So I'd encourage you to check that out if you get a free 26 minutes uh, in your day someday, maybe over your lunch hour or something. Uh, But this morning, I have been asked to delve into, man, you know what? Revelation 12 and 13 is a dense, hard two chapters to understand in Scripture. But we are going to do our best to unpack what God is telling us through this passage of Scripture if, even, even if you're not a Bible reader, you know, even if you don't um, read the Bible regularly, maybe you didn't grow up in church, maybe the Bible isn't something that you come to often or you, you don't read it daily, there's a section of Revelation that you're probably familiar with. Even if you've never read the text before, you're probably familiar with this section of Revelation because this section of Revelation holds three little numbers that most everybody in the world can reference, and those three numbers are 666. Six, six. So thanks Dave, thanks for this uh, challenge this morning, appreciate that. I was watching a YouTube video just this past week and um, I was reading the comments on this video and somebody had remarked, he was like, oh no, oh no, oh no, I am the 666th like on this video, something is going to happen, I mean why, why do we have this paranoia around this number? Just last week I was having a conversation with a friend about how he had watched a YouTube video and how this guy had purposely implanted a microchip in his hand that had all of his banking information on it. And he was walking around seeing if he could scan his hand and try to pay for things through it. And people thought, hey, this is how it's going to be in the end. This is the mark of the beast. Of course you never get that. There, Didn't didn't you know that there are you know 66s embedded into every barcode? That's not actually true, by the way. But people say things like that. I had a friend in college whose uh, mom got 666 stamped upon her license plate and she threw the biggest fuss in the DMV. She demanded that it be returned and that she get a new license plate. A year ago, a group of friends and I competed in an obstacle run down in Southern Jersey. And this obstacle run, you, know, you, get, a, you get a black magic marker and they, and they write your number on either your hand, on your, on your shoulder, or on your forehead. And so I get, go up to the registration table and they write 664 on my hand My wife Emily Sam, they write 665, and then they skip over 666 and write 667 on one of our friend's hands. So, Why is there a paranoia around this number? Why are we we afraid of this number? Why is there such great fear around this number? Why is there such a stigma attached to it? This is probably what Revelation is most known for. Again, even if you've never even read the Bible before, even if you've never even opened it before, You've never read Revelation, you have no idea what it's talking about, you're probably at least familiar with 666. This is what Revelation is probably most known for. And so here's the approach I'm going to take this morning. I'm going to try to help us understand what the first century audience who originally received these letters from John, this apocalypse from John, would have understood in regards to what he was communicating. And then and only then am I going to try to help us understand something about what it relates to us. Now, this is not always the approach people take to Revelation, so if it's not your approach, we can still be friends. Did you know that we can disagree as Christians and still be friends? Can I get a little more MNs out of that? Because um, we talk about this all the time down in Levittown, but did you guys know that what the church is most known for? is our hatred, our bigotry, our judgment, our hypocrisy, what we are against rather than what we are for. Do you guys know that is true about the church in America by and large? There's a book written not too many years ago called UnChristian. If you guys want more information about what the world views Christianity to be like, then I would encourage you to pick up that book and learn about it because it is very, very disturbing. And part of the reason it's disturbing is because when you get to passages like this in Revelation, and one person has a different opinion, another person has a different opinion, and then we start to bicker and complain about what is right and what is the correct doctrine, And the world sees it and they say, you, can't get, you guys just can't get along with anybody. You're so, you're so prideful, you just walk around with this, this air of pompousness everywhere you go. You can't get along with people who don't believe differently than what we believe. And I think what we're actually going to learn in this section of Revelation is that is a trick of the devil. So Revelation 12 begins. If you have the Bibles, you're welcome to turn with me to 1136 and 1137. We're going to breeze through chapter 12, spend a little bit more time in chapter 13. But Revelation 12 begins with this very odd vision of a pregnant woman clothed with the sun and the moon. And she has a crown with 12 stars upon her head. Opposite this woman is a dragon. The dragon has seven heads. He has 10 horns upon those heads, and he has seven crowns upon those heads. The dragon swipes a third of the stars from the heavens, and he waits to devour the child that this woman is about to give birth to. The child, who will rule the nation with an iron rod, is born. But he is kept safe as he is snatched away to God. The woman then flees to the desert where she is kept safe for 1,260 days. It is then revealed that the dragon is the Satan himself. It is the devil. And seeing that he has failed to kill the child, he wages war against the heavens. He is thrown down to earth, however, and knowing he has been defeated, he begins to do his worst against the woman who had given birth to the child. She, however, is protected. They engage in this really weird battle of... of the dragon begins to spew water from its mouth and the earth swallows up the water. The Satan realizes it's useless and so he goes on attack against the women's offspring, who we are told are those who have remained faithful to Jesus. So, anybody confused yet? Probably, right? Here's the point of Revelation. Time and time and time and time again, John is hoping that the people who are reading his words would be encouraged and inspired to remain faithful to Jesus Christ, even amidst the horrible, horrible, horrible so much that we cannot even grasp and fathom how horrible it was, the persecution that they were experiencing in the first century under the iron fist of Rome. Be encouraged, be inspired, remain faithful, they would say, even if your life is on the line, even if there is an axe against your head and your head is on the chopping block, even if they are clothing you in animals fur and unleashing you to the wild animals in the Colosseum, even if they are dousing your head in oil and lighting you on fire, even if they are hanging you or crucifying you, remain faithful to Jesus Christ. That is John's plea over, over, and over again in this book. See, Revelation is written to Christians who are facing horrible, horrible persecution under the iron fist of Rome. And it may seem odd, but in chapters 12 and 13, John is retelling the story that began 150 years prior to the birth of Jesus. So we got about 250 years of history that John is retelling the story about when persecution really began for God's people in earnest, when the Jews really began being persecuted severely around 150 B.C., And he's telling the story of how now, as the the people of God has, has, you know, turned over into the people of Christ, the the church has, it was developed, and how we're still experiencing great persecution. God was faithful to to watch over the the people in the Old Testament. God will be faithful to watch over you. So remain faithful because God has been faithful. And that's really what chapters 12 and 13 are about. He's retelling the history of God's people, about the 300-year history of God's people up until that point. And so the key to understanding chapter 12 is this illusion that this child who would be born would hold an iron rod upon his hand. This is a reference to Psalm 2. It's a messianic psalm describing how this messianic figure who would hold the iron rod in his hand will be the king of kings, the lord of lords. It is his relationship to all the other authority figures in the world. And this pregnant woman, you would think then, would be Mary, right? If the, if the child being born is Jesus, then the mother who is birthing him is Mary. But that's not how this imagery works. The woman has 12 stars upon her head like a crown. This is not Mary, it is faithful Israel. It's not Israel as it was, it's Israel as it was intended to be. And this is evident in the fact that she does have a crown of 12 upon her head, 12 stars upon her head, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was this nation, this faithful nation, that birthed the Messiah. And so this woman really represents the entire people of God. She's chosen to carry forward the plans for all of creation. And that through this nation, all of the world would be blessed. It's a reference all the way back to Genesis 12 when God promises Abraham, through you, all of the world will be blessed. Not just this people, but through you, all of the world will be blessed. And that is why this woman is holding the sun and the stars and the moon as her garments. It's not just for the people of Israel. It is for all of the world. This blessing through this messianic figure will be for all of the world. And this specifically is why. The, day, the, the, the dragon, the, the forces of evil, are after this this child, determined to strike the faithful people of Israel and her child. And so I'll get to the explanation of the dragon's seven heads in the ten horns in just a minute, but for now, know that the dragon is the Satan. It's the force of all the corruption, the evil, the pain, the turmoil, everything that we experience in, in, in pain upon this earth, immorality, whatever it may be, this is the force behind all of that. And the dragon swiping a third of the stars from heaven is a reference To when 150 years, as I've already referenced, before Jesus was born, Antiochus, four Epiphanes he goes into the temple of God, he sacrifices a pig on God's altar, and then he wipes out a third of the Jewish population in war. When the Jewish people prevailed in war against Antiochus, the dragon stood waiting to consume the the Messiah child, we're told in chapter 12. And if you know the story of Jesus' birth, as we do, we recite it every Christmas, right? Jesus, as he was born, was was threatened heavily. King Herod wanted to destroy him and kill him. It's a reference to when Jesus was born, how his life was being threatened. But the dragon is thwarted in all of these attempts, and John compresses the entire life of Jesus into a single statement. The child was snatched away to God and to his throne. Jesus was victorious in his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Christ is victorious. God is victorious. God has won. The dragon has lost. And so this woman, the faithful people of God, however, is still in danger. But she is protected for 1,260 days, or 42 months, or three and a half years. I mentioned the war between the Jews and the Antiochus for Epiphanes, 150 years before Jesus. This war began in June of 168, and it ended December 25th of 165, as Judas Maccabees and his sons cleansed the temple. You guys might know the story of Hanukkah. This horrible stain of trial and chaos in Jewish history lasted 42 months, or three and a half years, or 1,260 days. It became a symbolic period of trial and of suffering. And so when John sees 1,260 days is allotted for the period provided for God's protection of his people, he's not assuming that at the end of that 1,260 1, days then God's protection will end. He's saying, "You are going to experience pain." You're going to experience suffering. You're going to experience trial. You're going to be persecuted. Following Jesus is not going to be a walk in the park. But know that even while you follow Jesus, God will always be protecting you. Following Jesus is going to have problems, friends. Come on. We follow a Lord who is persecuted and suffered by hanging on a Roman cross. Why should we expect that our lives should just be cherry pie and cupcakes all the time? You will always be at war. The enemy is against us constantly. You will always be attacked, but know that God is always watching over you. This is just as true of us as it was of them. You see, God has already won the victory through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The dragon has been hurled down to earth. His war against the heavens has been lost. So knowing that he's been defeated, he turns his attention now to God's faithful people. The church is under attack and so why do we constantly at war with each other? Why is the church known for bigotry and hypocrisy and judgment? Why are we known for what we're against rather than what we're for? Why does the world have such a bad taste in its mouth towards Christians? Come on, we're at war. We are at war. And we need to do better. We need to engage the fight. We need to enter into the battles through prayer prayer through perseverance, through proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, through acknowledging that we are covered in the victory and the shed blood of Jesus, we are at war. As chapter 12 rolls over into chapter 13, Satan is standing on the edge of the sea. He's looking at all these little ragtag groups of Christians that have popped up over the Mediterranean world. And he calls up his monsters out of the sea to come and wipe them out of existence. The first monster he calls up is not all that unlike himself. This monster is a mimicry of the dragon. The the monster has seven heads, it has ten horns. It's a it's a monster that is holding the essence of the dragon and the mentality of the dragon, the disposition and the longings and the purposes. The desires, the heart, the image of the dragon, this monster is just like the dragon, a mimicry of the dragon doing now the dragon's work on earth. The monster is described as having ten horns, seven heads, and that resembles a leopard, a bear, and a lion, just like the dragon was in chapter 12. This is an image taken from Daniel 7. It presents a long line of pagan kings, in this case specifically the seven emperors of Rome plus the three would-be emperors who died in short short succession after the death of Nero in A.D. 68. We're told in verse 3 of chapter 13, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound. But the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder, and it followed the beast. So there are four emperors prior to that of Nero, who rose to power in A.D. 55. I apologize for how small this is, but you can see that this is the succession of emperors all the way f- beginning um, uh, with Augustus all the way to the end of the first century. Nero came from ruthless parents, some of the most horrible people antiquity has ever described. For sport, they would kill their friends. They'd, they'd, they'd have dinner parties, and they would put their friends in arenas, and they would have them, their, their own friends um, kill each other for sport. This is the family that Nero grew up in, horrible, horrible people. And when Nero wasn't the clear successor of the throne, every mentor in his life told him to take it by force. Your brother's in your way, just kill your brother. Your stepbrother's in your way, just kill your brother. Get rid of all the people who are in your way to acquiring the throne. And so that's exactly what Nero did. To pass the time, Nero would roam the streets at night, beating and raping and killing whoever he encountered. It didn't matter if they were male or female, children or adults just what he did for fun, just what he did for sport. He watched his parents do it, he did the exact same thing. In AD 64, he burned 10 of the 14 sectors of Rome to the ground. He blamed Christians on it. But in this, it began a horrible spree of persecution all throughout the Mediterranean world. All the while, Nero sat on his throne claiming to be the one and only God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of God. And that he and he alone should be preeminent and worshipped above all other deities. He claimed immortality. That even if he were to die, that he would rise again and again and again and again. And so after Nero committed suicide, several kings rose to power claiming the spirit and the ways of Nero as their god. Nero himself wasn't actually resurrected as he claimed he would be, but his ideals certainly were. His cruelty certainly was. His hatred of Christians certainly was. His desire to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth certainly was. Everything that he stood for was resurrected with the emperors that followed him. And it is this same Emperor Nero that is at the center of this next monster, or perhaps more appropriately, his ideals. Then I saw a second beast come out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. So John solace is a great parody. Right? The true ruler of the world, Jesus Christ, who is described in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation as a sacrificial lamb, yes, a lamb who has been slain, but a lamb who now stands victorious, is being mocked by this lamb-like, dragon-like figure. The dragon had set himself as the ruler of the world through establishing Rome and its ideals bent on hatred and cruelty. But that was the first monster. And now comes the second monster, very much like the first, but subordinate to the first. See, these are the local expressions in every city and every town, directing the attention and worship of their people to the first monster, to Caesar worship. It performed great signs, verse 13 says, even causing fire to come down from heaven into earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the first beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived, Nero. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. So worship the first monster, the emperor, and the power of Rome through the local expressions of the second monster, an image, a statue of the Caesar, or be killed. This is their choice. Christians of the first century had a choice. Bow down, kiss the image of the Caesar, and you can live. We don't care if you worship Jesus. You know, we don't care who your God is, but as long as you put the Caesar as preeminent and every other deity and every other God is subject to him, we don't care who you worship. Bow down and kiss the Caesar, and you can live. Otherwise, prepare to put your head against the chopping block. It's your choice. What are you going to do? Worship the image of Caesar. Of the monster, or you will be killed. But not only this, if if Christians somehow evaded persecution and death, Rome made it impossible to live within their society. Verse 16 tells us that it also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands and on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. That the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. And that number is 666. And it absolutely does call for wisdom, does it not? Not only to decipher who John is actually referencing in this, but then to ask ourselves, what does it mean for us today? What are we supposed to glean from this? What are we supposed to take from it? What's it all about? See, according to Revelation, the mark of the beast, the number 666, is of a man. It's in reference to a man. In the Hebrew and Greek languages, each letter had a numerical value. So, you know, if you were to do this in our day, it would be like A equals 1, B equals 2, C equals 3. It's a little more complicated in their day, but every letter in the Hebrew and Greek languages had a numerical value. So many who wanted to encode a message would then attribute a number to someone rather than simply stating their name. We see this actually in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. You know, people were like, oh, the genealogy, it's so boring, it's so boring, but to the Jewish people, they would have been so excited about what the genealogy is trying to communicate. If you ever read Matthew 1, there is a number that pops up time and time and time again, and that number is 14. 14 pops up over and over again in genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, and anybody in the Jewish world of their day would have known that King David's number, if you were to take David's names and apply a number to it, was 14. And so geneal- the genealogy in Matthew 1 is just shouting, David, 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 this is the Messiah, this is the one we've been waiting for, this is the one who was promised, a king, like David, the Messiah is coming, this is Jesus, the Messiah. And so very similar in their day, you know, political leaders, everybody who was famous had a numbers, numbers tr- attributed to their day. And so, John, the author of Revelation, finding himself under constant oppression and persecution, found that using a riddle to describe someone was far more effective than using their name. I think he wanted to protect himself, he wanted to protect his leaders. I have friends who are serving as missionaries in countries that, um, you know, Christianity is illegal. And early on, I remember getting these emails saying, hey, you guys, I'm, you know, I'm heading off to the Middle East, I'm heading off to China, I'm going off you know, to these countries that, that Christianity is now legal, and, and if you're ever going to write to me, make sure that you don't use words like Jesus or God or Trinity or church or blessing or praise or worship or any of these religious, you know, Christianese-type languages because all of our emails are electronic, electronically censored. And so you're going to put me in jeopardy if you, you know, communicate with me in a way that is Jesus-y. And so we didn't, or we misspelled Jesus. We, you know, left out a U or something. You know, we, we would misspell the word so that their censors would not pick it up. And it was the exact same way in first century Palestine. I've already discussed how paranoid Emperor Nero was, how he hated Christianity, and so how do you communicate to Christians the need to be faithful amidst horrible, horrible persecution? But not condemn you know, Rome and, and tick them off in the process? How do you equate the Roman emperors being as significant and, you know, shadowing the, Satan himself but not use language that's going to tip it all off? See, in the first century Roman world that spoke primarily Greek, Nero had a number, and that number was 1,005. John couldn't use that number because in the first century Roman world, people were graffitiing that number all over the place. Everybody knew what Nero's number was, so it was too obvious. He would tip him off. So John couldn't use the number in Greek. He's writing to a primarily Jewish audience, Jewish Christian audience, and so he uses a Hebrew equivalent instead. In the Hebrew, Nero Caesar equals six, six, six. And we're told that the mark of the beast is a symbol given to those who identify with the person, right? Those who would bow down and kiss the image of the Caesar then would identify with it. And during Nero's reign, he implemented, as other world leaders had done at his time, a whole system revolved around his own worship that you could not buy or sell in the marketplace without acknowledging that you worshipped the Caesar. They made it impossible to exist within their society if you were not willing to worship the Caesar. And so they would give you a, a stamp, a mark, a tattoo upon your, your hand or upon your forehead to indicate that you had bowed down and kissed the image of the Caesar, that you were holding the worship of the Caesar as preeminent about all other worship. And unless you had this mark, you couldn't buy or sell in any Roman marketplace. You essentially could not exist as a Roman citizen in the Roman Empire unless you were willingly submitting to Nero, to his ideals, to his ways, and to the ideologies of Rome. And so in this way, it was a literal marker stamp. Basically, the mark was proof that you had registered with the government your religion. And so I'm not going to talk about the current political landscape of our world or our country in great detail, but if you want to talk about current applications of the mark of the beast in our day and age, don't look to microchips being implanted in hands. Look rather to a government that forces its people to register their religion, and if they abide then by the religion of the government, that they would receive said perks of such government. And if you will not abide by the religion of the government, then you will not exist within that society, or you will be targeted or persecuted within that society. It's happening actually all over the world in countries. There's a government religion, and they're forcing all people to follow it. And if you do not, then you will be targeted. It was suggested even within our own country that that would actually take place. But in another, I think, even more profound way, there is a spiritual implication to this. Remember, one thing is that Revelation is adamant to claim over and over and over again is that victory comes through the suffering love of Jesus Christ. It is through his sacrifice that victory was made. That the path to redemption, the path to restoration, the path to transformation, the path to healing and to forgiveness always leads through love. And So I need to turn from Revelation real quick to make one thing simple and clear. The grandest story that is being told throughout all scripture is how God saw us in our great need, but in his love for us came near to us so that in response to that love, we would in turn love our neighbors, love others. So when Jesus claims the entirety of the law and the prophets can be summed up in this one command, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, he's claiming that the whole Jewish Bible can be summed up in a single commandment respond to god's love for you by loving others so here's the thing jesus didn't pull this command out of thin air he didn't make it up on the spot it was the tradition and assumed way of life of those who are earnest in following god this command to love god and others was the cornerstone of israelite faith and practice and this is precisely where jesus took it from he took it from the shema in deuteronomy 6 not only this, Deuteronomy also indicates that our love for God and love for others is to be the conversation that we engage in all of the time. That the, <coughs> excuse me, that the words we have upon our lips all of the time are love for one another. That the conversation is always foundationalized and contextualized in a love for the other. Impress this on your children. Impress a love upon your children. Talk about love when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, make love the conversation you engage in all of the time. And so in order to assure that the Israelites remembered this call, God tells them to tie them or bind them as a sign on your hand, right? This command to love God and respond to God's love by loving others. Write it upon your hand. Put it upon the frontlets or your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house, on your gates. Surround yourself with this reminder to love God with all that you are, and as a response to your, and sorry, as a response to God's love for you, make sure that you apply that same love to your neighbor. Jews took this very seriously. They developed phylacteries, which were little scrolls that contained this simple command to love God. In response to that love, that we ought to love our neighbor. They put it upon their their, their wrist. They they wore it as like a bracelet upon their wrist. They put little boxes upon their forehead. They created mezuzot, which were wooden boxes that they put upon their doorposts and they put upon the gates of their house. And so every time they entered the house, they would hit their doorpost as a reminder that they were called to love God with all that they are to apply that love to their neighbor. The Jewish people literally surrounded themselves with this command to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the reason that they tied it to their head was so that everything that they thought would have to pass through this reminder that we are to love God with our mind. And they put it upon their hands as a reminder that they said with everything that we do with our body, with all of our strength, with however our hands move, we are to love with it. The first thing the Jewish people said as they woke each morning was this command. The last thing they did as they went to bed was say this command. Again, it functioned as a bookend to remind them that every single moment in between that bookend was to be defined by a love for God and in response to that love that God had for them, that they were to love their neighbor. It is this committed, dying to selfish, self-interest, self-gratifying, self-pursuits, this enduring love for God that secures victory. That tells us that the great accuser, that all of his torrents of lies that come out of his mouth like a flood of water, all of his accusations have no foundation when we are living in the love of God. All the fear that he wants to generate within you has no foundation when you are living in the love of God. So keep this in mind as we go back to Revelation. In the ancient world, the numbers had great significance. Jews would look at the number seven, for instance, and they would see this is the divine number, this is the holy number, this is God's number. And because this was the case, six, they would say, who fell one short of seven was the epitome of imperfection. Jews also understood that if something was repeated three times, that which it declared was to be perfect. So Isaiah, in chapter 6, he sees this vision of God in his temple, and he says, Holy, holy, holy. He could have just said holy, right? It seems a little redundant, Isaiah. Why you keep going off about the holiness of God? Holy, holy, holy God, you are perfect in your holiness. You are the epitome. You are the very definition of what it means to be holy. That is what he's trying to communicate. And so 666, understanding its numerical significance, simply means the declaration of perfected imperfection. See, those who take upon themselves this number are perfected or hardened in their imperfection. It is the complete denial of God. That's the hardened heart. Consider, more importantly, where the mark is placed, right? The beast also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their hands and on their foreheads, remember the command that lays the foundation for right relationship with God and sec- secures the victory is that the heart of God's redeeming story is to be put upon our hands and upon our forehead. We are replacing our command to love God with all that we are, with a hardened, apathetic heart. See, the mark of the beasts for those who have it is this agreement that we are perfectly imperfect. That we are hardened in our imperfection, that we couldn't care less about serving God, about loving God and responding to God's love for us, and in turn loving others. It's just, it's just not what we're interested in. It's not my motivation. It's not my disposition. It's not how I'm going to live my life. The hardened heart is the heart that has given up trying. If you look at your hands and say, you know what, these hands are mine, I can do what I want with these hands. I don't have to submit these hands to anybody. I am my own person, and I can do whatever I want with my hands. If you look at your brain and you say, I can can do whatever I want with my brain, my mind that God has given me, yeah, it's mine to do what I will with. My eyes, I can do whatever I want with my eyes. I don't care what they view. I don't care how it offends people. I can do whatever I want with it. My mouth, it's my mouth. I don't care what I say, how it offends you. I have no responsibility to love you with my being. If that is your disposition in life, and we all know people who probably think that, Maybe that was you. Maybe that's still you a little bit. That's a hardened heart. You you, you couldn't care less about this responsibility to love God and respond to God's love by loving others. But if you have a softened heart, and you look at your hands and you say, "How can these be vessels of God's love for my community?" How can they be used in service of others? If you look at your brain and say, God has gifted me with strategy and calculation and I can use this brain to enhance our society and to love on people. If you look at your mouth and say, how can I speak words of love? What is my motivation? What is my disposition towards others? If that is your motivation, then your heart is still tender. It is still soft. You're not perfect at it by any stretch of the imagination, but you want to be used as a vessel of God's love? That is my hope for this community. That we would not be so perfect in our imperfection that we don't care about what it means to love others. And it doesn't matter what those people look like or how they act like or what religion they are or how they dress. But my responsibility as a follower of Jesus is to love. And you know what happens when you begin to do that? You begin to look at the dragon who wants to tear Christianity apart tear the church down, rip it limb from limb, and let it lie ruined on the ground. And you say, we are not going to be part of your demise. We're not going to be known for our judgment any longer. We're not going to be known for hypocrisy. We're not going to be known for being bigots. We're not going to be learned for our divisiveness. That is not what Grace Point is going to be known for. It's not what Restoration Church is going to be known for. We are going to begin to make a difference, and we are going to begin to love our community because that is our calling as followers of Jesus. So, my friends, let us consider all that we are heart, soul, mind, and strength in everything we're about, and move in the way of love. That's my desire for you, that's my desire for restoration as well. We're (coughs) we're in a season where it is tempting to look at those leading us politically or in our places of work or at our homes and our schools. We're in a season where it's easy to look at those who are attacking us and our enemies and say destruction is going to be our primary goal of those rather than loving our enemies. It's easy to look at the injustice and the bigotry and the hatred and the scandal and to let our tongues loose to slander and belittle them. We think it's justified. It's easy to let our strength loose and beat up on those who don't agree with us. It's easy to let our minds loose to think thoughts of hatred towards them. It's easy to let our hearts loose and wish their demise and their condemnation. But my friends, we need to hold fast to our calling. And our calling is to love God with all that we are and to respond to his love for us by loving our neighbors. We need to trust God that he has secured the victory and we need to allow our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our hands to become instruments of God's love. This is the only path forward, my friends. The devil is doing all he can to tear us down, but this is the only path forward for the path of redemption, the path of transformation, the path of forgiveness, the path of life always leads through love god's love for us and in turn our response to god's love by loving our neighbor that's where it begins that's where it needs to end and so my challenge and my prayer for grace point and for restoration alike is that we would be communities known by god's love working through us and as we respond to it that we would love one another let us do away with all of the hatred with all the judgment with all the hypocrisy with everything that the world views christians as we got to make a change. The devil is doing all he can to tear us apart. And we have a responsibility to go to war, but to go to war in love. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would empower us to do this. We know that love is a fruit of your spirit, Father. It's not something we can just conjure up and try really hard to do. We must rely on you, Father. So let us be a church that is dependent and relying on what you are doing in us. Father, may that look like love. May that be love. May we learn, just as you have sacrificed, Father, to sacrifice for others. May we learn to mimic you and follow you. And may Grace Point look just like you as we love our community. We do pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.